Here are the three themes that are given up to us in the readings, all three of the readings today. And I suppose they, in some form, have to do with what the gospel is about, which is forgiveness. And since this is the 10th anniversary of 9-11, the whole issue of forgiveness is one, I think, that is very important for us and how we might think about all of that and how we might think about what Christian forgiveness is. And uh, so that's important. But uh, these, the themes are these, or at least when I read, read the texts, this is what I thought. One is, how do we understand what it means to be saved? And most particularly, what does the Bible say about being saved? And how, what are the varieties of being saved? And what do we mean by it when we say it and use that term? The second thing is, how do we in a community of faith, in our families, in any kind of an organization, deal with plural views about what people believe to be true uh, as they live in, in community life, and how do we handle the um, conflicts that arise out of differences, and what do we do about what's a core value and what isn't, and how do we think about those kinds of things. Paul is concerned to speak about that in Romans today because of a concrete pastoral reality on the ground for him. And then, of course, in the gospel, uh, how do we model and practice forgiveness as Christian people in the world? And uh, how do we unpack what Jesus says in usual hyperbolic fashion when he speaks about forgiveness and how generous and uh, unqualified it ought to be uh, as we live? And we may detect in this gospel the unforgivable sin. So we'll see what that means when we speak about it. Or like Robert Benchley said in an essay, running your tongue over the roof of your mouth or over your teeth and encountering a slight hole and realizing, oh gosh, I guess I have to go to the dentist. Right? Something is. But I'll just maybe can pack a little gum in there and it'll be okay. So maybe we got to think about how that works. We read a famous story in the book of Exodus. We've been reading over the last many weeks now uh, the the readings about the the history of salvation. And remember every Easter I talk about the the five-fold shape of the Easter liturgy which will influence the whole of the liturgical year since it's ground zero for uh, the liturgical year. And one of the four parts of the shape of the Easter liturgy is the rehearsal of the history of salvation. So we read the great stories about the matriarchs and the patriarchs uh, of Israel, and we read the stories about the saving events that we will read again in some of the prophecies at the great vigil of Easter. So today we have the people of Israel being saved by God crossing the Red Sea, and the waves come over and they kill all of, or a lot of Pharaoh's soldiers, and they drown, and the people of Israel come out the other side. There's a great hymn that was written by Arthur Seymour Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan fame. We sing it all the time during Easter. 
led them with unmoistened foot through the Red Sea waters. So you want to ask yourself, well, did, didn't their feet get a little wet when they went? <laughs> could, could their feet have gotten just a little wet? Nope. <laughs> unmoistened foot. <laughs> the people of Israel were saved. And if you were to ask the people of Israel about the saving acts of God, the mighty acts of God, this would be one of them. The other big one is the, the movement out of Egypt itself, the great liberating act. And remember that when the Savior is going to preach and teach about salvation, these mighty acts are in the forefront of his mind and certainly the people who heard him and saw his mighty works. And so they will begin to say, you know, we need to understand what this means. Are we speaking about salvation externally in history? Or is salvation only something that affects our emotional, spiritual, and mental states? Because since the Reformation... That's what most people preach and teach about salvation. You need to get right with God. You need to be convicted of your sin. You need to understand that it is important for you to inure yourself against the possibility that there'll be no post-mortem bliss. You know? I've heard evangelical Anglicans write essays in the last three or four years and they've said, you know what, we've lost a substantial leg up because we don't remind people that the downside of not doing this, of not accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, is that you are going to go to a place where there will be eternal punishment that is directly felt. Do you believe that? Some of you may. You know? The question in my mind is whether or not that's part of the core, because I think it comes from the 16th century mainly, and not necessarily from the biblical text. Jesus, we will see in a few minutes, is fairly direct in his comments about uh, what is one of the things you do need to do. So salvation is going to be understood by the Hebrew Bible writers and by those who are influenced by those sacred texts that we call the early Christians by understanding that salvation happens in the here and the now, in the events within human history, and that as we cooperate with the promises of God as human beings, we become part of the divine initiative in the world. And so salvation is not something you experience somewhere else in some cloud cuckoo land location. It's something you experience now and the people began to understand their role in those processes. Right? So we labor. We labor to bring God's saving work to the world where we create a world where it is easier for people to be good. 
not the sum and substance of it all, but it is at the absolute heart of our self-understanding. So I guess what I'm making a commercial message for today is to say that, you know, we need to see salvation in a kind of broader sense. And we also need to see our role. You know, part of this has to do, I've been talking about this a lot lately, part of this has to do with our understanding of what we mean when we speak of God's sovereignty. <clears throat> you know, and there was a time when people began to say, well, we've just not been too, too uh, insistent upon God's absolute sovereignty. Well, it's okay, yeah. But somehow, you know, there's more to it than merely God's absolute sovereignty. Because you and I would not know anything about the Bible, for example, without the church. I'll say this again. By the second century AD, three things emerged in this order. In the life of the Christian church, the disparate congregations throughout Christianity, all right, in the second century. The first one is Episcopal order, bishops. The second one is the baptismal creed what we call the Apostles' Creed. This is all for the purpose of maintaining some sense of co connection and continuity between disparate congregations who do things slightly differently, which we're going to talk about in, with Paul in a minute. And the third thing is the canon of the Holy Scriptures. In that order. And it will be in its final form in 369 AD. Bishops, baptismal creed, the canon of the Holy Scriptures. Those three things now emerge to maintain some kind of a continuity. So here we are in Romans with Paul speaking today about an important pastoral situation on the ground. He has never visited uh, the Roman congregation. It's, you can, when you read the epistle, it sounds to me like he hadn't been there, but he's sort of writing in advance. But he has something that he's experienced. He, he's aware of something he experienced in Corinth, for example. The Christian community on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement. And in Corinth, you had people who were having an internal dispute. They had a lot of internal disputes. But one of them was, there were a number of people that they knew and people in Corinth who were members of various mystery cults, Greek mystery religions. And part of their Greek mystery religions involved the sacrifice of animals, like in Judaism. So when the animals were sacrificed, the meat was sold in the market at the butcher. So some of the Christians in Corinth said, we, we don't think we should eat this meat because it's been sacrificed to idols. And there were other members of the Corinthian congregation who said, doesn't matter. We've been released from all this through the mighty works of Jesus. We don't have to worry about it. We can eat that meat and it's okay. So Paul says today, you know, some people are stronger, 
some people are weak, the weak eat vegetables. Was that a slam against the vegan diet? <laughs> Anthony Bourdain, you know who he is? On he said, vegans are the enemies of food. <laughs> That's a point of view, isn't it? Because actually some of that food is pretty good. But you can easily think that when you run into a zealot in that regard. So the question that we ask internally in the pastoral situation is, what does it mean to speak about weakness in that sense? Uh, what, what is the level we should have toleration of whoever it is or whatever group we define as weak based on our differences? Um, what is essential and what is non-essential uh, in our common life together? So Paul is talking today about something that is a very, very important issue in the Episcopal Church as we speak, and that is what is essential and what is non-essential. And in Greek, the word that we use is adiaphora, matters indifferent. So some people will hold that you have to do this, or you have to believe this, or you have to think this, and other people say, no, that's not necessary. So that's, of course, where scripture, tradition, and reason and experience come in as our standard for determining what is authoritative on one level. But on another level, it's a question of Paul saying, you know what, you're going to have a lot of differences with one another, but you need to, to uh, live together. And you need to go easy on one another about some of these things. And I think that particular issue has beset the church for a long time. There are people who believe keenly that some Christians have deviated from the faith once and for all delivered by the saints. And we're on that hellbound train. And there are others who have said, no, that's not true. And we believe that this is the authentic movement of the Holy Spirit. So some begin to say, well, we have to leave. And others say, well, no, we're staying, or okay, go, or whatever. Here's my issue with weakness. I think we should always uh, have as a default position uh, a generous spirit with regard to the way in which we treat people who are vulnerable. We treat people who are struggling with uh, change, with things being different than they remember, or feeling keenly that everybody's got a hue to a particular, you know. You find this in church organizations uh, in big and small ways. You know, people who are the gatekeepers in any group who want things to be done a certain way. So they come in and they bump up against people who either aren't doing them the same way or they're, they're um, upset because people don't do it the same way. And you'll get response like, I know that I may be difficult about this, but I just like to see things done right. <laughs> you know? So they think that that's what, what, they're, what they're doing. But here's the problem. Some people can look at uh, people who are uh, against stuff as being weak and we have to go gentle on them. And I got to thinking about, when I read this text, I got to thinking about the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. 
where in the Episcopal Church and in a lot of other mainline churches, we heard all this stuff about you need to go easy with people on this, on these changes, about integration and about doing all these who think particularly in parishes in the Deep South. You just can't do this. Uh, we can't go this fast. We have to be easy because these people are, are you know, it, it's just too, it's, it's disturbing. Well, and I can't remember who, who the person was, but there was a great line I, I, I heard then, and it's still good. If not us, who? And if not now, when? Right? If not us, who? And if not now, when? So sometimes, rather than getting into some sort of a, you know, thing about weakness or babying people along, you have to do the right thing. Justice and equity between human beings and fairness and treatment is not adiaphora. It is not. And so there has to come a time when you say, well, you know, we got to do what we got to do. It's a principled position. We believe the Spirit is moving in a direction for us. And that's what Paul is, is getting at here. I think this may have uh, something to do, too, with people that we really do have deep differences with and are inclined to be very sharp with, uh, that uh, it brings us to the, to the gospel. This is, a, this is a, a, a gospel that is an authentic parable of Jesus. He spoke this. So you have him teaching about uh, forgiveness. Peter asks him, how many times should I forgive? Seven times, thinking, oh, that's just too much. And Jesus says, 70 times seven. And it seems like, uh, on one level, almost ridiculous to say that. But his point is that forgiveness is the, the oil in the crankcase, so to speak, that keeps things moving along. And that it is absolutely essentially tells then the story of the uh, slave who was settling the accounts with the king. They used to use servant in the older translation, and I'm sure that that was much easier to take. But if you read it in Greek, doulos means slave. And uh, he had a debt of uh, 10,000 talents. I didn't look it up this time. I did, I've done this. 10,000 talents would make this slave George Soros in our, <laughs> you know, in our record. It was just fabulous wealth. And he owed the king a lot, uh, this, this stuff, the money. And he pleads with the king, and the king forgives him and shows him mercy. And he walks out, and he meets one of his colleagues who owed him a hundred denarii, a lot less, a lot, 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 lot less. And he also pled with him, and the slave who had the 10,000 talents was not generous and did not forgive him. So when the master heard about it, uh, or the, the uh, king... He threw the other slave in jail. It says to be tortured. That's pretty tough, isn't it, to hear that? And uh, 
the Savior ends up by saying, so, so it will be with all of you who do not forgive. So now we have to put a fine point on it because, you know, I've been a pastor for a while and there's a lot of things that have happened that, that I've heard about that have happened to people that would seem to me to be very hard to forgive. To put the burden on somebody to say, you need to forgive this person. You know? They're showing once again on the PBS uh, the, sh- the war, Ken Burns' The War, about World War II. And there's a real nice guy, one of the soldiers uh, who was one of the figures in the show, Ray um, Leopold, yeah, from Bridgewater, Connecticut, or wherever it is. Uh, He's a Jew, and he was an infantryman for a while, and then he became a medic. And he went into a hospital when when uh, the Americans got into Germany finally, he goes into a hospital that had been a, a mental hospital, and they go upstairs, and they discover that it's a place where they've been doing, the Nazis have been doing medical experiments on the inmates. And they got in there just before they were, they were all giving them lethal injections. You know, so they came in before they could finish that thing. He said, as far as I'm concerned, what I have seen, there is no forgiveness for this. It's for me. So I think to myself, it would be a little sentimental, wouldn't it, to say, oh, we all have to do that. We all have to forgive. But the other side of it is that if we don't handle this in some fashion, it owns us forever. You know? I've also met a lot of people who have, it's like my grandfather once said about a a friend of theirs, well, you know, Al, he's been enjoying poor health for 10 years. (laughs) So you can enjoy your resentments and your desire for revenge and your lack of forgiveness and so forth. You know, it seems to be easy. But to figure out the ways and the means to say that with God's grace, I can give that away. And in, in a sense, that's a form of forgiveness because I haven't allowed this group or these people to own me or to make me sick or crazy as the result of what's happened to me. So maybe that's sort of a way to think about this. I think it's easier to practice forgiveness than a lot of us think. Uh, And maybe it has something to do with asking God to help you uh, dilute your sense of um, your resentments and your sense of being offended in many ways. Some people have a very high, a low threshold of pain with regard to to those kinds of things. And I, in some way, in a practical sense, I think that's what Jesus is talking about, and so on. Uh, I do think it's a serious spiritual issue to be incapable of forgiveness on any level. Here we are uh, with 9-11. What is it, 3,700 people died? It was terrible. 
How many people have died as a consequence of that? How many people have died as a consequence of 3,700 people being killed in this country? Thousands of our soldiers and other countries' soldiers, men and women. Lots of civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan. Hundreds of thousands. So is it a proportionate thing or no? Or do we just say, well, you know, they brought it on themselves. Those are questions that, you know, we need to think about as we seek to let go. And that's why we pray for the people who ran into the Twin Towers. That was the toughest petition for me to pray. Right? I think it was in there for that reason. Ernest Cockrell told me one time, he may say this differently, but uh, some years ago, uh, there was an, every, you know, most communities have ecumenical interfaith services uh, on Thanksgiving. And uh, we do a kind of, you know, harmless liturgy that everybody, <laughs> that doesn't offend anybody, and then we go ahead and we think good thoughts, and we're all thankful and stuff. And uh, I guess somebody who was in charge of this part of it did uh, prayers of the people, which we are a form of prayers of the people. And uh, there was a petition in it where uh, the um, prayer for, uh, we prayed for our enemies in some, in some form. And the local rabbi in Saratoga called up and said, I want that petition out of there. Jews do not pray for their enemies. You know, there may be sound reasons for their principled position, but we do pray for our enemies. So, uh, this week, uh, give thanks for the opportunity to express God's unconditional forgiven, for love, forgiveness, and acceptance that you have received through grace. That you become an instrument of that when you believe it and own it and seek to live it and do everything in your power to express that. Um, see if you're getting hung up on too much adiaphora in whatever walks of life that affects you. And finally, remember that you are, together with God, an instrument of salvation in the world. Amen.